0: how much suck I have
1: to freaking sit through. I don't know. I mean, does anyone really pay attention to radio anymore? This is getting stupid. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. You ever seen a grown man naked?
0: That may be the stupidest thing I've ever heard of.
1: Your balls have been tempered in the fury of Hell's Dragon. Stupid! You're so stupid! Ladies and gentlemen, your host, JC Welcome everybody to the 510 Podcast This is episode 9 If you're just joining us, if you've never listened to us before Welcome back, as you know, the 510 used to be a radio show that we ran from 2007 We had a lot of great guests This new reimagined podcast has been so much fun Because we've had folks like Kevin Martin from Candlebox Marco Collins, Dave Allen from Gang of Four And it's been fun getting to know their journey more deeply than we did with the radio program And this week... I'm excited cuz we have Jordan Curlin from Noise Pop Treasure Island Music Fest, a band manager of all these really cool bands we're going to talk a lot about it. But uh Jordan, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Happy to be here. I really I was I was uh it was great to hear from you in general and appreciate the invitation.
1: You know, uh I'm going to tell a little story and I'm sure you don't remember. You and I met one time in real life. We met uh at it wasn't a Noise Pop show. I think it was a show to to promote the upcoming Noise Pop and it was in a small okay. Tiny little bar in San Francisco, and it was a Harmar superstar show. Oh, yeah. And I was. was blitzed out of my mind, and I ran into you, and I was like, What's up? I'm JC. Like, you were going to fucking know who the hell I was. And I, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I do not remember that. I remember the show. I
0: think it was at the parkside. I think you're right. Yep. The parkside. And side. it was the noise pop like pre part. It was like the Monday night before the festival. I can't say I remember our interaction, but I definitely remember meeting you at some point so it must have been 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 that but yeah, yeah. anyway that man god bless harmar
1: yeah it way. was um it was an interesting show i'd never experienced harmar a buddy of mine was um, a huge fan and she's like you gotta stand yeah. in the front row and i went why what's yeah. so important about it and then he got like m- mostly naked and i'm like why am i yeah. standing here in this front row at the park side, in front of harm. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. I, I'm, I'm yeah. super, like I said, I'm, I'm a, i am i love what you've done in your career. Uh, Treasure oh, Island Music Festival that. is one of my favorite noise pop, of course. Amazing. We've covered it several times, uh, for the 510. Yeah. Oh, um, but I want to get into like, what, how did you get into artist management? Because that was sort of like your first foray into music, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's still,
0: you know, what I spend, you know, the vast majority of my time on, you know, um, I, you know, I've been working, you know, partners with Kevin Arnold on noise pop since 1997. So it's obviously been a big part of my career. Um, but, you know, management was, you know, is my passion and it's uh, frankly how I make my living. I mean, noise pop has been really a labor of love for Kevin and I all these years, you know, um, and it's great, you know, that people appreciate it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, as far as artist management's concerned, When I was in college, I went to um, a small school called Pitzer College in Claremont, which is 35 miles east from LA. Um, I wanted to be a music journalist. And so I started writing about music for the school magazine, and I started meeting publicists. And that's when it kind of dawned on me that there's an actual music. I mean, this is pre-internet, right? This is like 1992, Mm -hmm. 93. Um, You know, it's a very, you know, very few people had computers in their dorm rooms. You know, some people were maybe using the intranet, but you know, um, so it wasn't like, it just hadn't really occurred to me that there's an industry behind this whole thing. And once that happened, a light bulb went off in my head. The summer before my senior year, give me the long version, sorry. It's all The good. summer before my senior year, which, um, you know, summer 1993, I, I moved to New York with some friends from college and I interned for a management company, um, that is defunct. It's called Seriously Inc. But their big client at the time was Lib- the band Living Color, who was a, a big band at that point. Um, and I got to know artist management. And, um, you know, honestly, when I left that internship, my feeling was that I didn't want to be a manager. I wanted to work in the music business, but I didn't particularly want to be a manager. Um, when I went back to Pitzer my senior year, two things happened. Um, I interned at Geffen Records my first semester, which... You know, being 35 miles east from LA shouldn't be a long drive, but it was about two hours each way with LA traffic on the 10. Um, <laughs> I bet. So that was my first experience in a record label. But I also started um, managing an artist uh, who I was in college with, He was a year younger than me, and he had put on his own, put out his um, his own CD. Uh, artist named Matt Nathanson, who's now you know local San Francisco artist, and he's done very well. And he and I continued to work together for about 18 years. Wow. Um, you know, that was really it. I kind of, I, I interned at a couple record labels. I did Geffen one semester in Imago and I started booking shows on campus. And as I was getting more experience at different parts of the industry, I decided I really did want to be a manager. And what drew me to being a manager was I wanted to be close to the creative process and being a manager is one of the few jobs in the business where you actually are. Um, and I also liked, you know, how, you know, being on the front lines and how diverse the experience was each day. Like you were dealing with every aspect you know, um, whereas if you're at a record label, if you're a publicist, you're doing a deep dive every day on being right. a publicist, right? Which is great. Um, but I liked having more of like an overall overarching, you know, kind of topographical involvement in everything an artist is doing. Um, so that, that that's the long version. So I graduated from Pittsburgh in 1994 and moved into L.A. I was looking for a job in a management company. I sent my resume out to a bunch of people. I ended up working very briefly as kind of a paid intern for Henry Rollins' Henry Rollins's manager. That didn't work out. Um, I then went and took the typical entry level answering phones at ASCAP job that I went on, I think, six interviews for, it might have been four interviews. Wow. Got the gig. Um, two weeks after I got the gig, I got a call from David Lefkowitz, his office. David was a longtime San Francisco manager. I'd sent my resume after graduating about coming up to interview. And so I came up over, I think it was President's Day weekend, in 1995, wow. and was offered the job and a couple days later and i moved back to i moved to san francisco thinking i'd be here for a year or two i was going to work in management uh david's big prime client was primus he also managed the melvins and charlie hunter um i had a lot of friends from college here it seemed uh um so yeah so that, that that's the short version and then i which isn't short at all and then i um you know then i started managing some you know i continued to manage matt nathanson and then as i was working in dave's office he let me pick up a couple of artists um you know a band called creeper lagoon
1: mm-hmm.
0: um this is 1997
1: so i was 25. you're, you're going backwards man creeper yeah. lagoon that's uh that's a blast yeah. from the past right there yeah and then the next
0: client i picked up was beulah um <laughs> so yeah and then uh you know i worked for david until 1999 then i left and started zeitgeist management
1: and who was your uh, first artist as part of that agency
0: i mean i took creeper and matt nathanson and beulah um they they went with me and i had started working with kevin so noise pop was a big part of my life at that point like i was doing i was booking noise pop i mean at that point it was really just kevin and i so i was booking noise pop i was selling sponsorship i was doing a lot kevin had um a full-time job at oracle mm. As a database engineer. So I was the one who actually could get stuff done during the day, Um, you know, and then, you know, my own, having my own management company was great, but it was a real struggle for the first, you know, four or five years. Um, You know, in 2003, Deathcap hired me Mm. right before transatlanticism came out and that completely changed the complexion of my business and my career. You know, up until that point, I was making very little money, you know, I'd had some success, right? I had an artist right. signed to a major label. I had, you know, indie artists that were, you know, getting tons of press. And even, you know, Matt Nathanson at that point had just signed to Universal um, and was selling out, you know, good size rooms. But, you know, it was a real struggle. Right. Um, You know, deathcap hiring me at the time they did. It was, you know, their previous to transatlanticism, the most they'd ever sold was I think fifty five, sixty thousand records, which was huge for an indie rock band in that time. Yeah. Um, so they were immediately our biggest client, but no one expected Transatlanticism to be, be what it was. I mean, the record, you know, sober, you know, it's closing in on seven hundred thousand
1: records sold at this point. So, um, and how did, just how did that connection happen? Like, did you just know Ben from another connection, or did somebody recommend so I, you? I had
0: met, I had met. Um, the death Cab guys in 1998, or at least some of them at North by Northwest music festival in mm-hmm. Portland. So one of the clients that I neglected to mention that I brought with me that I was managing and I brought with me when I started Zeitgeist was a band called Crumb, who was a local band, C R U M B. Um, there's now a different crumb, you know, not obviously, but, um, and when I met the death Cab guys, there was a woman from Seattle. So I saw it North by Northwest and she said, you should go see Death Cab for Cutie. They just put out a CD, it's really great. So I remember we tried to go see them at Barbadi's Pan in Portland and we missed the show. But my girlfriend at the time, who's now my ex-wife, um, bought a CD from Chris Walla. And I think I may have even, I can't remember if I talked to Chris, but I learned that they were fans of Creeper and Crumb and we kind of stayed in touch. And then I had Death Cab open some dates for Crumb. And then, then they played noise pop the next year and we just kept in touch over the years. Yeah. They were self-managed. So, you know, thankfully they are who they are. And at the time they wanted to bring on a manager, obviously there were much more successful, bigger management companies or managers who wanted to work with them. You know, I was at a point in my career, I'd been doing it for a long time. I was 31. I just turned 31 and I felt like I was a good painter, but I didn't have the right canvas. Mm. You know, I was never able to show, you know, my bands all kind of did well and then petered out. So yeah. With death cab obviously it just it changed everything you know the, the record did really well um i got to you know i got to be part of something um you know that i had not been a part of yet which is a really successful album campaign so that was really exciting for me
1: you mentioned something along the way a band decides it's now time for a manager for every yeah. band i'm sure that po- that point is different right that that milestone right. is different yeah but for for a general sense How do bands know when it's time for them to get a manager?
0: I think it really depends. I mean, like you said, it's different for everybody. I think, you know, like, I mean, I could say from the perspective of me getting approached by a band, you know, which might be different from when a band feels like it's right for them to bring on a manager. I think for, you know, it's, you have to really think about what you're, why you bring on a manager, right? Like, what are you trying to get out of it? Like, bringing on a manager isn't this magical cure. To like, like all of a sudden you're gonna get a record deal and a booking agent and um, you know, it's, it's you know, managers like bands come in all, all shapes and sizes. So a lot of bands just starting out might have a friendager, so to speak. And that friendager might really grow and become a, man, a great manager. Mm-hmm. They might not, you know, and then, um, but I think it's really about what, you know, it's really about what the goals and ambitions of the band are, but it's also being realistic you know, about what are you bringing to a manager, right? Like for us, not that we wouldn't work with a, a new artist because we do, but it's just like what, you know, I have a business, we have employees, we have overhead. Like we can't just, you know, there's real considerations, mm-hmm. you know, to take in every time we we pick up a client because, you know, managers only make, we, we work on commission. So we're not making right. money in, if the band's not making money. So there's only so many slots for a quote unquote, you know developing our young artists but i mean what a man. i mean this isn't really directly answering the question but i think knowing what a manager does is so key to when an artist should bring in a manager i mean what a manager does ultimately is you know we're kind of like you know i, I liken it to being a general contractor if you're mm-hmm. building a house or you're remodeling like we're we are working with the client representing the client managing all the different subcontractors um to make sure that you know the vision is realized and keep everything on track, um, you know. Oftentimes, again, like if it's if it's a band that's building up a touring base, having a booking agent involved early is going to be more important than than a manager. Um, you know, it's it it just it 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 really. I I I wish I could say like there's a right time. There just isn't.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: We pick up artists very early on just because we really like what they're doing. They might be signed to a small wet record label or not even have a record deal. We've, you know, we also because we've. As a company, I've been doing it for a while, and we have some success. We we also have the luxury of getting called about artists that, you know, maybe are you know have a little momentum behind them already, which is obviously preferable. Yeah, from and, a business standpoint.
1: And when you when you're looking at a band for Zeitgeist, are there certain thresholds or milestones you're looking for in a band that this is worth taking on? because you have all these overhead things to think about, yeah. what what are some of those things? I mean, obviously they have to have a little bit of traction, but what yeah. are you looking for beyond that?
0: Well, I think for us it's I mean, first and foremost is something we really love and believe in. Right. Because, you know, as a manager, you really are the most involved with, with a with a client. Yeah. You know, I mean with an artist. You're you have to I mean it sounds cliche, but you just have to has to be something you want to go to sleep listening to brush your teeth to like, really, you really believe it. Um, I think we, we manage, you know, we take on clients with different goals, you know, like there's going to be some clients we might work with are like, okay, this band's been around for a little bit. They're doing pretty well. You know, they're they're selling out the Fillmore and they're selling out, you know, Brooklyn Steel in New York and they're, you know, they're going to make us some money, but they're not going to, you know, they're not ever going to, probably really grow beyond where they are at this point some bands we might get involved with you know earlier where they're not making any money at that point so it's huge or much bigger so right like investments because it is an investment of time yeah and you know having a diverse roster and like having you know this artist is always going to hit a double this artist strikes out a lot but they might hit a home run you know like it, it is i mean it's you know, every baseball analogy you could throw in there, you know, it's <laughs> because just you're sorta, a big Giants fan, too. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm, I'm a very I am a big Giants fan. Um, but, you know, that that's really it. So I think for us, it, it starts with the music. I mean, obviously, if there's a big artist that calls us and none of us are like massive fans, we're going to evaluate it differently. Like, sure. Maybe this is worth doing because it's going to, you know, the revenue is going to be this. I mean, we've rarely even taken me like we've definitely taken meetings or that was a situation but i don't think those are the right you know it's just not really why i got in the business i mean that's one of the other reasons i wanted to be managers i wanted to be able to pick what i work with yeah you know if you're at a label you're often assigned you know to what you're working on how you're spending your day let's talk and for us like so yeah
1: yeah Yeah. let's talk about the music festivals because that's really interesting to me um you you had noise pop and that was more like sort of South by Southwest light, right? It was sort of San Francisco's version of of South by Southwest. Multiple venues for people that are unfamiliar, um, week-long event, uh, lots of up-and-coming bands that you probably haven't heard, uh, sort of paired along with bands that you have heard of. When you guys started Treasure Island Music Festival, what was the purpose for that? Because with noise pop is always clear, right? Sort of like being the stewards to this up-and-coming music scene for up-and-coming artists. But with Treasure Island, what was the purpose behind that?
0: Well, I think, you know, for us for Treasure Island, um, we really looked at it. We've been talking about Kevin and I've been talking about an outdoor event for years. And doing it more in the mold of of Noise Pop, being, you know, in you know, the type of artists we would book at the Noise Pop festival, which is more, you know, indie under, underground college radio leading artists, um, you know, a more intimate festival experience that we would find, you know, across the country. Um, you know but you know one thing you have to keep in mind with Treasure Island. It's like we lo- we start Treasure Island a year before outside lands existed, right? Mm-hmm. So we we really looked at it, and I think you know my my guide, you know, with, with noise pop in general. and Obviously, we tried a lot of oh. we've tried a lot of different things over the years when we've been doing something as long as we have, you know. Um, but I think. You know for me i really look at what we do with noise pop obviously we're promoters or producers of events but really look at what we do as curators right we curate um we curate shows we curate experiences and i think where we're best at is by identifying things that the san francisco bay area does not have but should mm-hmm. and that was certainly the case with treasure island we felt like why is there not an outdoor music fest i mean this was you know there were a bunch of music festivals it was really we were kind of on the front edge of like front end of the festival, huge expansion explosion thing, but it was really about like, let's create a festival that feels like noise pop outdoors. Yeah. And um, Stacy Horn, who worked for us for a number of years, she toured some sites and brought us to look at them and it just treasure Island felt so obvious. Yeah. But then, And then it was a matter of, well, how do we pull this off and how hard is it going to be? But it turns out that getting the permits and being on the island is pretty easy because, you know, they they were getting ready to develop Treasure Island and they wanted to bring some people out there. And get, yeah. You know, it was it was, it was a good time. Um, we knew from day one that we weren't going to be able to stay on the island forever. So I feel really, really fortunate that we got 10, 10 years in, um, although the weather didn't cooperate in year 10. But um, <laughs> we, you know, that was... Uh, you know that was that was really it, and you know we knew that we it was going to be a challenge for us to pull it off, and so that's when I you know brought the idea to another planet about partnering on it, and yeah. you know it worked out super well, you know because they were you know they were a fairly young company in Hungary, and it was an opportunity for them to you know um, it was an opportunity, it, was, it was a cool opportunity for them too. Yeah, so it was it was really great. I mean, it was great for ten years. I mean even the year it rained it still was okay i mean year 11 didn't pan out um you know as far as like ticket sales and finances and stuff and that's ultimately why we didn't bring it back i think you know the demographic here had changed and there were a lot more festivals and you know when we started treasure island it was kind of cool that we were at the tail end of the festival season but by the time we got you know into the you know you know years into it, it was like, yeah, we're still at the tail end of the festival season, but now there's like 150 festivals and people are, you know, between, you know, Coachella and us, whereas, you know, so. It did seem like a a lot
1: popped up, right? Like you got Bottle Rock, you got Outside Lands, and then you just all the ones that are in between there. So it it did seem like it was less about bands touring and more about like bands could actually build a tour and go festival hopping.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was, yes, exactly. And you know, it'll be interesting to see what the festival marketplace, what would come out of this, what, what the festival marketplace looks like. Yeah. Um, you know, on the one hand, and I guess this is going a little bit into, you know, you you know, you know, wanting to talk about the future of the music business. I mean, you know, on the one hand you could be optimistic about festivals because they're outdoor, right. And certainly outdoor events are going to do better, um, you know, than, than indoor events initially. Um, but, you know, the flip side is like, if we're still adhering to social distancing and, you know, if outside lands, you know, can't sell 70 or 75,000 tickets can only sell 50,000 tickets. That's a whole new, you know, increase, you know, if you're having to enforce social distancing and wearing mm-hmm. masks, you've got a whole, you're going to need added security or you're going to be taking temperatures. Few, you know, like there's just so many layers of things to think about. Right. Uh, that it's pretty. It's pretty crazy.
1: What did you so, learn along the way from Noise Pop and Treasure Island Music Festival that you think helped make it better as you went along? I think, you know, Treasure Island, we never really strayed
0: very far from the formula. You know, we we added some things in, you know, to the, you know, but we kind of just kept with the idea that we're going to do this festival it's going to be smaller. I mean, the capacity grew, I think it was, you know, over the years, but we, we wanted it to feel intimate. We wanted to make sure the bands didn't overlap. That was like a big thing that you yeah. could see every band if you wanted to, um, you know, we, we put stuff that, you know, we tried to comedy town one year, you know, there were different activations on site, but at the end of the day, we really just stuck to the formula really there. I don't, I don't think that hurt us ultimately. I think, I think what ultimately hurt us is having to move off the island. We shouldn't take, we took a year off, you know, like they're just things, Um, you know. uh, Or, you know, maybe just festival around its course, you know, maybe it's just supposed to be around 10 years. That's possible too. Um, You know, noise pop's gone through many phases over over the years. I think, um, you know, I think with noise pop, again, what we do best is put together small shows, putting bills together that are interesting, exposing people to bands early on that they might normally get a chance to see, putting local bands on bills or at venues that wouldn't normally be playing. Um, you know, we've tried through the years, I know you mentioned like the Southwest, South, Southwest Light. We tried through, year, through years to have some panels or have some, edu- you know, we used to call it the Educational Series. Yeah, Never really took off. And that was it. was, it was more of a bandwidth thing than anything, right? Like we're... Sure. You know we haven't been able to we haven't been able to we just have never had enough staff to execute all these different things properly so i think with noise pop look we're we're you know kevin started in 1993 you know we'd be you know we're obviously rapidly approaching 30 years of doing this so um we talk a lot about how what it can morph into and you know maybe it's just meant to be what it is yeah you know and I think for us, again, you know, pre-pandemic, a lot of the conversations were about, well, what else do we want to try to do? What else do we want to launch, right? Like what what does the Bay Area need? Um, you know, we started 20th Street Block Party, you know, I think five or six years ago, and that's been a really kind of, you know, love letter to the neighborhood where our office was, um, celebration of, you know, kind of the, you know, the culture and the food and the music in, in that part of the Mission District. We have thought about doing additional block parties. We have thought about launching another small, you know, festival but you know i think you know with the festival marketplace again i'm kind of speaking more pre-pandemic it just you know when people would ask me about festivals it's like the main thing is having a point of view yeah. and that was like the world doesn't need more music festivals you know maybe there are some locations that do maybe there's some parts of the country or world that do but in general it's like everyone's festivaled out or had been festivaled out so Unless you're coming in with something that feels really unique and different, I don't know what the point of launching another festival is. Right? No, I, and we had some I, I totally ideas. agree. Yeah,
1: yeah, I totally so, agree. I think you know when I, I don't like going to festivals anymore. Like I've been to Coachella, I've been to a bunch of different festivals. I think the challenge is, especially if you're talking about Coachella, you can't go see all the bands you want to go see. So then it becomes like, is it really worth spending yeah. that much if you're going to end up seeing them touring, especially in the Bay Area, right? We live on in the West Coast, so we have the benefit of seeing most of those bands yeah. come through our neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, so then it just becomes like, what's the what's the value there? And so to your point, yeah. you know, having a festival that is unique yeah. enough to add value is, is probably the most important thing.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, like, look, I you know, I obviously have to go to festivals a lot just for work, um, you know, which is not a bad part of my job. But I would say I'm on a need to go basis with music festivals at this point, sure. like. I'm not going to spend a weekend at a music festival given I have to already spend, right. again, (laughs) I used to have to spend so many weekends at music festivals or traveling for work that I'm only going to go if I really, if we have a client playing, no one else is covering or whatever. Um, You know, now it's, um, you know, again, I think we'll, we'll put some thought into like, once we see how the Bay area comes out of this and what, you know, the marketplace looks like, I, I think there's going to be, a tremendous opportunity for the Bay area. creative community to come back after this, because I mean, look, I think we will read today what rents dropped 30% in San Francisco That's year crazy. over year, which is insane. Um, you know, hopefully, I mean, look, it's terrible. I don't want anyone to suffer. I mean, I know this is going to be really, it is really hard. It's going to get harder, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, having lived here since 1995 and watching the artist, artistic community, you know, evaporate, it's because of the high cost of living and, yeah. and the culture here. It's exciting to me to think about what that could become. And, and hopefully noise pop could be a part of that.
1: Have you forward. guys ever thought about doing noise pop in other parts of the Bay area? Right. Like, you know, San Francisco gets a lot of love, but yeah. what about doing some in Oakland or Berkeley? Right. There's a lot we, of really we've good.
0: We've done more shows in Oakland over the last few years. Yeah. Just, you know, now that there's venues, I mean, right. you that's know, true. unfortunately it's like Starline is being sold. Who knows what that's going to become. Yeah, um, But no, I mean, I think we, we do want to do more stuff and we've, um, we've even done, you know, we did noise pop for Chicago for two years and like, oh, wow. you know, 2000, 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, I think now it's just, you know, kind of we're just taking a wait and see approach cause we don't even know. I mean, obviously we're not going to be doing the festival next year because, sure. you know, at least yeah, in yeah. February cause no one's gonna be able to, you know, yeah. but so we're, we're just trying to figure out what, what comes next
1: Yeah, at this point. So it's, uh, it's a great transition. What's next for the music yeah. industry, right? Like we talked a little bit about like the, you know, post, what What does the post-pandemic music industry look like?
0: I don't know if the recorded music side of it or the publishing side really changes sure. too much. You know, I think, you know, other than there are probably going to be a lot of records coming out at the same time when we come out of this because a lot of artists are, you know, using this time to write, um, you know, using this time to record uh, and, you know, for a lot of artists who, you know, which is most artists in the music industry at this point, who are all, um, who are all, you know, whose income comes from touring, the, um, the, you know, they're gonna wanna put records out around the time when they can tour again. So, you know, realistically, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but it seems like it's very possible to be touring next summer and fall, even if it's, if it's primarily outdoors, yeah. but really I think 2022 is when things will start to feel quote unquote normal as far as the touring market's concerned. Yeah. But what's going to be abnormal is just the amount of artists out, out on the road, you know, yeah. because everyone has had tours canceled or hasn't made any money and they need to, you know, that, that's going to be the challenge, right? Like, so, um, I don't, you know, I think a lot of venues are going to close if there isn't a stimulus package that properly addresses the needs of, of the live music industry. I mean, getting a two month reprieve, you know, on PPP loans is nice, but that's not going to do anything. Right. We were the first to, we were the, we were amongst the first businesses to close and we'll be amongst the last to open when you talk about, you know, promoters and, and, and venues. I mean, our business is based around, you know, large groups of people conjugating in small spaces, right? So, you know, it's not very COVID friendly, you know, obviously once there's a mass market vaccine that um, people trust and is approved, that'll help. But yeah, it's going to be a while. Yeah. Before yeah. It feels, feels somewhat normal.
1: When you started this, you talked about, you know, there was no internet, there was no MP3. There was, it was not, we hadn't turned the corner to being a digital music industry yet. Now, right. obviously, most of it is digital, right? There's some argument that vinyl's coming back, but let's dismiss that for a second. How do bands now have to pivot and connect with fans that they didn't have to do, say, even 10 years ago?
0: Well, I think it's just, again, you know, it goes into tour. Like, touring is really the, the primary revenue stream for so many artists these days. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, you know, a positive of the internet is you know artists having the ability to have a direct relationship with their fans and being able to eliminate the middleman so to speak um you know but i think things that we've seen during the pandemic you know live streaming is is moving ahead and people you know are going to be willing to pay for it to some extent but yeah. for most artists i mean you know, the bill, upcoming Billy Eilish live stream, I imagine will do incredibly well, but you know, what we found with our artists who have done live st- paid live streams and we haven't done a ton of them is like, you kind of sell as many tickets as you would on a headlining, a major city. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, when you think about that and that's when you're selling globally. Right. Right. So it's not, it's pretty far off from being, you know, it might be an ancillary form of revenue, but it's not, it's not going to replace touring. Um, you know, I think, you know, hopefully, um, you know, streaming becomes more significant for most artists. I mean, right now it's such a volume business that if you're, you know, that if you're Cardi B or if you're, um, you know, Kanye, you're gonna make a lot of money off streaming. But for, you know, the type of artists that I care about, you know, indie rock bands, those are album artists. People don't sit around playing a single over and over and over and over the way they do. you know, and more pop oriented things. So um so I think, you know, hopefully that 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 will that will change over time. Um you know, I think, you know, what Bandcamp's really done with the Bandcamp Fridays over the over um you know, over COVID's been really incredible in, in terms of, you know, both passing that money through to artists, but also um, but also just creating urgency. You know, like what this business has lacked so much of is urgency because in the streaming economy, and I'm guilty of it too. It's like, you like, oh, that's great. One of my, you know, Wilco has a new record coming. I love, they're one of my favorite bands, but like it'll come out and I, I won't you know, maybe I'll, It's it doesn't have the same urgency of like when you used to go to the record store to buy a record or a CD or a cassette, Right. Um, you know, Bandcamp Friday really has created a, a degree of urgency and, you know, that's, that's why we did, you know, that's ultimately why we decided to do those two compilations that we just released through Bandcamp. Um, One of our clients, Pup, put out a live record for one day only on Bandcamp in July. And we were all really floored at how well it did nice. in such a period of time. I mean, they were insistent on it being a one day only. We were trying to I mean, frankly, like we as managers thought they should just put it out and keep it out. Yeah. And they wanted to make an event of it. And it worked really well. And that that gave me the light bulb when I was trying to think about what can we do around the election? Get a bunch of artists involved in a, a relatively simple way, um, and hopefully raise a lot of money. You know, no way did I think we were going to raise as much money as we did, but still, it's great that it yeah. that it all, that all it all it all went the way it did. So I don't. So to answer your question, I think, you know, I don't know how much the like the recorded music side of the music business is going to change. Yeah. Um, I think the touring industry is going to is going to be affected for a while like even you know you're gonna have less clubs you know unless something miraculous happens yeah clubs are going to close promoters aren't going to be in a position to take the risks they once were um you know so you know you know if security costs are higher capacity is lower bands won't make as much money yeah you know that's going to affect how bands tour and then like i said earlier you're in this place where every band is going to want to tour once the world opens up again. Mm. So, you know, I think you'll see a lot of packages initially because rather than, you know, compete, you know, trying to, trying to try, cause we're all gonna be competing for money. right? Like we're all going to be competing and dates. for tickets. Yeah. There's only
1: 357 yeah. dates, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So, yep. And um, so we'll see, I mean, you know, how sponsorship plays into all of it. I mean, obviously there's a lot of companies that haven't been sponsoring you know, live events, maybe that becomes more of a thing, you know, maybe that becomes even, you know, more plentiful for touring. I don't know. Yeah. You know, We'll yeah. have to, we'll, we'll see, but, um, you know, I think the, um, you know, again, I'm, a, you know, look, I, it's going to be a long road, but I'm excited for the next phase of it all. I think yeah. it's going to be, I think a lot of I think we're gonna have some incredible records coming out because even talking to my clients about it, it's like they never get to stay; they're never stuck at home writing for seven straight months. Right, right. You know, they're writing, and then maybe they're playing some shows, or they're, you know, like. So I, I, I think that I think that will be a positive.
1: So you're you saying know, there's some, some new Death Cab that. coming? That's really exciting, Jordan. Thanks for breaking <laughs> that on my show.
0: Yes, <laughs> there will be some new Death Cab. Re- there will be new Death Cab coming. I just have no idea when, but right. yes, it is. You know, it's safe to say in the next couple of years there will be right. Death
1: records. I'm sure, yeah. no doubt. It's he, uh, also
0: safe to say there will not be a new postal service record. So that's
1: a. <laughs> <laughs> that was, was that your idea, by the way. <laughs> the
0: PSA, yeah,
1: or the the audition um, stuff. <laughs> um. No, I mean, not. To, I mean, in
0: 2013, it was my idea. Yeah. To I didn't know what it would look like, but I said we should just pretend there's like this postal service audition tape that just got discovered, and there's a bunch of random people, and then we. I love it we brought that idea to Tom Sharpling who brought it to life and made it way funnier than I, you know, we ever would be able to do. And, you know, kind of when all the postal service, you know, the USPS stuff started coming up over the summer and people were kind of making jokes about the postal service and such great heights and, you know, like save the postal service, you know, Joe and my office and I started talking to Ben about, trying to figure out if there's something to do um you know to to like play into like kind of almost like a vote by mail educational Psa around mm-hmm. the postal service um we talked to headcount who was interested in partnering with us you know ben wanted to work with tom sharpling again and that's and that's how the idea of like the second that's how it became the you know kind of the second installment of the the you know the postal service auditions.
1: I just love it when a musician or a band uses their platform like that. It's yeah. like you said. I think it's it's finding ways to be creative in this during yeah. this time to stay not just relevant but just to stay part of the community.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think you know I've been really lucky. I mean, part of you know my, uh, I mean, a big part of my journey into being you know politically active was Defcab's Cab's interest in being politically active in 2004, mm. you know, because it is very intimidating for artists and even managers and, you know, to figure out like what to do and how to get in. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I've, you know, this year obviously I've had so much more time than I normally would to, sure. to do stuff. So it's been, that's been, you know, that's been a positive a part of it. Um, but, you know, that PSA was incredibly fun to work on for all of us. And, you know, the goal was a simple one is just, you know, make some people laugh, remind them to vote, you know, get some smiles out of them. And, you know, and we had no idea who was going to be able, like, we were just blown away at all the people who raised their hand and wanted to be a part of it. I mean, like we got Ann Hathaway and Slash and Kenny G all in the same <laughs> PSA. That's not typically
1: you know? a group that you see in the same video. So <laughs> no, no, it, it is not, it is not, you know, and we could
0: have done more. I mean, we didn't have, you know. Look, the original goal was for that thing to be 10 minutes. It ended up being 18 because of all the people that were in it. I mean, we could have had, there are other people who want to do it too. We just had to cut it off at some point.
1: That's amazing. So,
0: you know, it's really, really fun.
1: I love it. Uh, Well, Jordan, I'm so glad we got a chance to do this. I'm glad that you finally got a chance to be on the show. Um, Like I said, you you know, we've we've covered it a bunch of times and I'm just glad that we got a chance to chat.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, man. I really appreciate you inviting me and um, it's always good to chat. And hopefully I'll see you you know, sometime out in the world when we're all allowed out in the world properly.
1: (laughs) Fingers crossed, my friend. Hey, guys, you've been listening to the 510 podcast. Tune in every Thursday on the 510.com or anywhere you get your podcast Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The 510 Radio on The510.com. Any rebroadcast, transcription, or dissemination in whole or in part is strictly prohibited unless given express written consent by The510.com or its officers. All music played on The 510 Radio and The510.com is copyright of the respective owners. This has been a production of The510.com.